if you do look at the renewable industry today, it's very hostile to unions. They're very hard jobs to organize. They're spread out, they're dispersed, very transient workplaces. And so they're very low density unions. And also renewable energy projects, because of the tax credit system in our country are owned by Wall Street. Some of the wealthiest people in the whole economy are the ones that have financing and stakes in these renewable energy projects. So. Renewable energy right now is a very anti-labor, pro-Wall Street kind of regime. Welcome to Labor Solidarity, which is an Empathy Media Lab production, highlighting the work of labor leaders and discussing historic struggles and the importance of organizing to new audiences with the goal of building international labor solidarity. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer for EML Publishing that creates content on labor, political economy, art, and culture, and we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with Matt Huber, who is an author and professor of geography at Syracuse University. We'll be discussing his book, Climate Change as Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet. Matt, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Could you begin by introducing yourself? So I am a professor at Syracuse University and basically kind of been for many years researching the intersection of energy and capitalism from a, a Marxist perspective. And um, it's probably surprising to many people who hear the word geography and think it's, you know, you know, just sort of knowing the capitals or where the rivers and mountains are, but yeah. it's a very robust and, and very diverse discipline that covers physical systems and human systems. And in the seventies, a kind of more radical geography emerged out of the movements of the 1960s. And, and, and one of those currents was a very straight ahead Marxist political economic approach that really wanted to kind of understand how capitalism related to kind of the spatiality of the world economy, but also how it related to the environment and resources. And, and, uh, as it happened, like one of those geographers is a guy named David Harvey, and he's risen to become like the most cited geographer in our in our history and <laughs> a really prominent Marxist geographer who who kind of reaches a broader audience teaching about capital and Marx and things like this. So yeah, I'm lucky to be in this weird little subdisciplinary space of, of Marxist geography where I think it's a really interesting and important ideas are allowed to flourish. <laughs> so your background, how did you get introduced to Marxism? Because I went to school, got my political science degree, got my public policy degree, and it was very much framed as a neoliberal Adam Smith, David <laughs> Ricardo, Milton Freeman, and a lot of other ideas were left out. Myself, I've spent a lot of time also looking at the American system of political economy, right. looking at Henry Carey and Henry Clay and... Mm. Hamilton and, and a lot of these mm. other groups that were kind of working concurrently with Marx. And that's a little more of my background. But how how did you get introduced to Marx and and why do you why do you think this is kind of the way to frame things? Great question. I actually in college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And like many people, I thought, oh, I'll just do what's practical. And what's pra what was practical in the late nineties was to be an economics major. <laughs> and so I was in in economics. And I would, I did decently at it. So I thought that was a sign that, you know, I'll stick with it. But at that same moment, I kind of became radicalized around the environment. And I started to learn more about the climate crisis and, and the larger ecological crisis and became, you know, like many kids in college became kind of like, you know, really upset and kind of 
channeling a, a sort of like hippie. I really started out in this really kind of like it's it, it, it philosophy. It's called deep ecology, like really, which I've later learned is pretty reactionary stuff. But in any in any event, I found myself an, an economics major. And, and it, as it happened, one of the professors in our economics program was was a, a sort of leader in the field of environmental economics. So he was teaching us all these kind of what we call neoliberal environmental solutions to climate crisis, like cap and trade, sort of emissions credit trading and carbon taxes and ways to price environmental problems into the market and pay for ecosystem services and all this stuff. And I, being the hippie kid who was like, nature is beautiful and sacred. I was like, this is BS, right? Like we can't put a price on nature. Like this is insane. And so I was really pushing back against this neoliberal environmental economics perspective and and found myself drifting over into other classes. And I, I got into a class on just, I think it was called Sociology of Inequality. And in that class, of course, we got a heavy dose of Marx. And and, uh, and I, I was in another political theory class where we read the Communist Manifesto. So at, at those moments, I'm like, okay, so this, <laughs> this way of thinking about capitalism and political economy in a more critical way as an, as, a, as an exploitative system is actually, I jive with that much more. <laughs> And so, and so then I finished college and I, I decided I wanted to pursue more an academic field. And very quickly, I kind of sort of through happenstance learned that there's a whole, there's also a broader field, not in geography or it's in geography, but it's more broad in the social sciences. That's just called ecological Marxism. And it's basically Marxists trying to kind of take into account the 20th century ecological crisis through the 19th century theories of capital and political economy. And so I, I started in a master's program under an ecological Marxist sociologist and um, worked with him and then discovered geography during that. And then, you know, went off and really started focusing more on energy issues. And, and so, yeah, it was a long, a long trip, if you will. <laughs> Something I really love is history and mm -hmm. trying to study the history of even thinking like the history of economics. And when you look at the history of classical economics, as it was taught, in the 1800s, these concepts of capital, production, labor, right. value, these were ubiquitous in all the discussions, like yeah. what creates value that you need in the reproduction of society. And yeah. Yeah. now yeah. anyone who talks like that is like, they're like, oh, that's some crazy socialist Marxist. But <laughs> this was the, the center of the debate of like yeah. how you organize the system. And yeah. people often forget that Adam Smith was funded by the British East India Company mm -hmm. to really promote some of these concepts of the invisible hand and, and some of these other things, while Britain was very much locked in to allowing the free market to exist in Great Britain, but right. to dump their goods, whether it's in India or the US, to destroy those markets and take it over and, and try to have people swallow this poison pill of, of Adam Smith. And mm -hmm. most economists I talked to today have just no understanding of who was employing him and who was paying mm -hmm. for his wealth of nation books. But I digress. So for the audience who doesn't know about kind of Marx's view of these concepts of the market production <laughs> and capital just a little bit of background before we go into your book so just and that's a that's a hard one because he wrote <laughs> thousands of pages yeah so yeah just in 30 seconds just no, i'm just kidding yeah <laughs> as long as you need to follow up on what you said i mean as you suggested marx basically continued the tradition of classical political economy in that 
they all, you know, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, the, the physiocrats in France, they all thought, you know, they were trying to grapple with this new emergent exchange economy where people are trading goods and, and their theories of value were all on the same page that ultimately to understand value, you need to understand how stuff is produced, right? And, and all Smith, Ricardo, and Marx had different kinds of labor theories of value that ultimately thought, you know, the value of commodities has to do with how much labor you put into it. And, and that was a very, I would say, materialist and some people call it an objectivist theory of value that's really about, you know, like nature and labor coming together and producing real stuff. But then in the 1870s, you get what's called the marginalist revolution and, and what we now call neoclassical economics. Kind of they scrapped that and said value is more subjective. It's what we want, our preferences and our values and our consumer desires. Is our, what utils, drives, our utils? Yeah, our utility. Yeah. And, and, and the utility is ultimately coming from people's consumer preferences. And, and so they, they kind of erased production from the analysis completely. And, and that links up with what Marx was trying to do too, because he actually was critical of the classical political economists for being overly celebratory about the market, about being this incredibly free space of exchange where people are voluntarily trading goods and, and how this is so new and different. You know, we had an economy based on slavery and serfdom coercion. Now we have the free market, everyone's free. And he tried to point out that the, you know, the, this so-called freedom is, is rooted on you know, the mass expropriation of the population from any secure means of existence. So taking them away from the land, particularly the peasantry, and forcing them to sell their labor power for a wage is called free labor. And right. So you're, you, you, he said, you're free in the double sense. You're free to choose who you're going to work for and sell your labor on a market, but you're also freed from any guaranteed means of survival. And so, so what he tried to say is that if we really want to understand how this system works, and particularly he was interested in how surplus is created, he says we can't be looking at this realm of exchange in the market and where people are trading. We have to go into what he called the hidden abode of production to really go away from the market site and go to see how, again, how stuff is produced. And he said, when you, when you look there, you see a less a zone of freedom, right? You see a zone of, he called it despotism, where capital is is a political theorist recently wrote a book called Private Government, where she talks about how under capitalism, the, the boss is a dictator, right? <laughs> when you work in the factory, you have no freedom. You are forced to submit to the production plans of the capitalist or the boss. And, and not only are you unfree, but you are being pushed by the boss to produce harder and faster and more efficiently. And so Marx really said, once you look there, you see this despotic, highly exploitative system that's just basically sucking value from these workers in, in, in production to create surplus value and create profits. And that's the real core of capitalist surplus production is exploitation and, and horrific exploitation. You know, he's writing in the 19th century. He's reading reports about what's done to the workers in the factories. And so, so again, his whole kind of point is to show like, yeah, maybe on the surface, Capitalism looks pretty nice. You know, people are freely exchanging goods and, and they're free to choose, as Milton Friedman said. But when you look at how the profits actually made, you see an, ex an incredibly exploitative system. And one thing I try to do in the book is say we can kind of do the same on, cl on climate politics, where if you follow a lot of discourse around climate change, it's ultimately focused on the realm of exchange. It's like we're going to 
you know, the problem with, you know, someone called it the the greatest market failure in history, right? That the problem is we're spewing these emissions, but people are doing it for free and it's not internalized into the market price mechanism. And if we could just figure it out a way to kind of get the market to see these emissions and see these climate impacts through a carbon tax or through emissions trade, and then the market would just, and the exchange system would just naturally adapt and, and, and seamlessly deliver us a clean energy transition. But if you go away from exchange, and you go into production, you see a much more, you know, a ravaging, a much more emission intensive type of system. And I try to point out in the book, like the, the huge bulk of emissions come from production, you know, like steel alone is producing about seven to 9% of global emissions. Cement is another seven to 9%. Chemicals is what I look at. I look at the fertilizer industry and you can add electricity production and all this stuff. And, and, and so again, when we look at production, we see much more the kind of the reality of what capitalism is, is a sort of ruthless profiteering system that's just trying to do whatever it can to make more money and accumulate profits. And, and it has little regard for workers or for the environment or for the climate or anything. And that's where we have to kind of keep our, our focus on if we want to actually solve this issue. Yeah, definitely. And towards the end of the book, which we'll get into is the importance of unions and organized labor to be yes. able to counteract the the rapaciousness of the ruling class. So mm -hmm. so then why did you want to write this book exactly? I mean, you, you've already kind of given a background, but like what wh where has the environmental movement gone wrong that you mm -hmm. are trying to assert this new framework? Right. to try to get them back on, on track. There's a lot of ways to answer that. The first, as I open the book, is that if you're looking clear-eyed at the situation, you have to admit that we're losing this struggle, like the climate movement is not winning. <laughs> and it, it's sort of, when I wrote the book, it kind of felt like we were winning because there were more climate strikes and marches and a lot of pledges amongst polit politicians that we're going to reduce this much or even corporations, we're going to get to net zero by 2050 or whatever. But then you also look up and you see and emissions keep rising. <laughs> and it's the only measure of, of winning. So what I really wanted to offer was a class analysis of why we were losing. And so there's sort of three aspects to that. The first is that I was really frustrated because I have a lot of comrades on, on the left who I would say when they even talk about class and climate change, they, they get it wrong because they're only talking about, they say, you know, even a magazine, a socialist magazine like Jackman will publish something like climate change is a class uh, struggle. And then they would focus on, you know, the problem with climate change is these rich people and how they consume, right? What their consumption practices are. They might eat a lot of meat. They might drive an SUV. They might drive private jets or fly private jets or whatever. And, and. And, and, you know, you can look at people's carbon footprint purely in terms of their cons lifestyle consumption emissions. And that's how almost, it's quite stunning. Almost everyone, if they ever talk about inequality or class and climate, they only talk about people's consumption-based emissions, which completely obscures a number of things. The first is that when someone is consuming some commodity, someone else produced it <laughs> and profited on it and made all sorts of money on that. And they deserve some responsibility for the emissions that come out. So when you drive, you know, you're burning fuel that ExxonMobil made all the money from. So 
the fact that you, the just a poor person trying to get to work, gets 100% of the emission responsibility for that oil seems wrong. The other real class problem with this is, you know, ExxonMobil and British, actually British Petroleum, they came up with the whole idea of a carbon footprint itself. And so they they find it very convenient to say all the attention should be on your own consumption and carbon footprints and keep the attention off us, the ones, again, who are making all the money and really profiting from this system. And the third real issue is when we only when we only act as if the rich, the, their climate problem is how they consume and how they spend their money, we ignore how they make their money. <laughs> and I would say that activity has way more climate impact. So if you have a CEO of a fossil fuel company, surely what they do at their workplace, you know, organizing a global network of oil extraction is way more impactful than if they drive an SUV or if they take public transit regardless, you know? And so ultimately it's a lot of moralizing around lifestyle and consumption and not getting that who has the power who owns energy systems and who has the power to shape them and who profits off them. And that's where we need to keep our attention. The, yeah, no, yeah sorry. No, no, please, please. So long. The, the, the next thing is I try to diagnose why we're losing this struggle. And I say, there's a class story here, which is that ultimately, if you look around who's driving climate advocacy and climate politics and the climate movement, it's from what I call the professional class, which are people largely college or above educated who have who who marshal credentials in the labor market to gain some sort of advantage in the in the context of a, a, a highly unequal economy. And so journalists, scientists, nonprofit people, NGO people, these, if you look around, are all the people who are most upset about climate change or are driving the advocacy around it. And what I argue is they also have these kind of class blinders. You know, they want to make the struggle all about knowledge which for highly educated people makes sense about belief and denial about the science, but they want to, you know, because they've attained some sort of modicum of middle-class security, they want to make it again, all about their consumption and, you know, scaling down consumption and consuming less. And, um, and ultimately they, they, they don't offer a politics that really has broad mass resonance with the wider working class. And even in a so-called rich country like the United States, you know, we're talking two-thirds of the of the workforce or the country are really living in the context of of decades of austerity, of wage stagnation, of, of mounting debt, of struggle, right? They're really people are really, especially now with the inflation crisis, people are really making heartbreaking decisions on do I pay the rent or do I pay the heating bill? Like people are living paycheck to paycheck, struggling to get by. And 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 sort of finger wagging about the science or about how everything you're doing in your life is causing climate change is not going to win them over. And so what I argue is that to win this class struggle, which I think climate change is, and ultimately what I say, class struggle is not about, you know, your income and consumption practices. It's about production. It's about who controls production, who owns it, who benefits from it. And if we're going to win that kind of struggle, we need to mobilize the vast majority of society, the, the working class, and we need a much more materialist kind of politics and program that can meet people where they're at and resonate with their everyday material struggles. And you see, you know, like in France, where, where people try to impose a kind of carbon tax that's 
going to be on the backs of workers. They go a into regressive revolt. tax. Yeah. yeah. And then you have the yellow vest. Yeah. Exactly. So they, they revolt to that kind of stuff. So, and so there's, you know, we need to win over the broad working class and the kind of large scale climate program. But as you suggested earlier, we also need to think about how can we get the actual workers yeah. who are in these energy systems, who know, who have, take pride in keeping these systems running to keep modern society running. How can we get those workers on board with a, a kind of climate politics that can be in their own interest, right? And try to try to overcome this longstanding tension between the kind of environmentalist NGO community and unions and workers who who do the work in those systems. So, yeah, and you you clearly break up the book into these three parts: the capitalist class at the beginning, yeah. then the professional class, and the working class. And you use that framing to kind of walk the reader through what's happening presently. You use a lot of history and then you use a lot of Marxist theory and analysis to to kind of break down what some of the solutions are and, and why things are. Some of my concerns and critiques of the environmental movement as it goes with climate change is that I, I lived in Africa. I was a Peace Corps volunteer for mm. three years in Zambia. And I lived off grid, no electricity, no running water. And yeah. everyone around me wanted electricity. And oh, God, yeah. they were all like cooking. We we were all cooking over open fires. Oh. And, um, you know, it's a little romantic to go camping. And I mean, as, <laughs> as a blessed American, I can yeah. just, I if I got sick, I could leave at any time or I could just quit and just leave. But these people are in some ways condemned to live this life of poverty and immiseration and, and high child mortality. And, and then I come back here and there's a lot of people on the left that are like, well, cook stoves are fine for Africans because if they consume at our level, then yeah. the climate crisis is going to even, you know, accelerate faster. And, and so for me, it's like, what are my greatest concerns? It's like, okay, nuclear war right now with, with the yeah. way the world's going. Yeah. And then the, the poverty and immiseration throughout mm -hmm. the planet. And mm -hmm. how do we rebuild this entire and, and build in some places that have never been built in a just manner that is clean, environmentally sound, right. and that is equitable to the workers so that everyone can have a house, everyone can have a job, everyone can have healthcare, running water, electricity. And much of the environmental movement that I've, come across is oftentimes on this idea of austerity and mm -hmm. and this scarcity mindset yep. instead of abundance mindset, which actually works towards the people who can manipulate the markets to make the most money on the swings of mm -hmm. the the scarcity. Mm -hmm. And so you let's let's go let's go deep into the book then. Let's start let's start there. On the introduction, you talk about fossil fuels and a May 2021 report by the International Energy Agency said that Right now, it, fossil fuels represent 80% of total energy mm -hmm. supply as 2020. Mm -hmm. So I've I've listened to Alex Epstein. I've listened to a lot of other people mm -hmm. about like that without, if we just cut off this right now, we're going to reduce the world's population, you know, to devastating levels, right? So yeah. there's got to be this, if, if you want to get off carbon energy, we have to figure out how to do it in a way that doesn't, you know, lead to extinction of the human species. <laughs> so you you kind of go into that and then you you focus on um th this whole blaming consumers 
you know, right. assumes a Western consumer is an absolute sovereign who sends CO2 mm -hmm. packing to other parts of the world. But we are in this system. Mm -hmm. And and China is a big part of also meeting the needs of our demands because we've outsourced so much industry. And, and right. China's building a, a, a coal fire power plant every week to try <laughs> to achieve its ability to take over the market share of like Western Europe that's completely been shut down with COVID, the United States. Our production capacity is as it's collapsing, China's just taking that market share and, and uh, becoming more powerful. So with, within that, I guess, do you think that the background of the capitalist class has this historical momentum almost of, mm -hmm. of looking at the scarcity mindset in environmentalism and kind of that you bring up Malthus sometimes and, and mm -hmm. you bring up even like eugenics, I've heard you, I, mm -hmm. I think, describe in other interviews, but could you kind of talk about like the the thoughts behind the capitalist class and Malthusianism? Yeah. So there's, a, you know, I want to start by saying that it's no coincidence that the modern environmental movement, which does focus a, almost exclusively on limits, you know, you can think about 1972, the big report by the Club of Rome called the Limits to Growth, <laughs> and then you have basically a bunch of environmentalists that really, like you said, is totally, totally into this scarcity mindset. And that comes at the same time where you have a crisis of capitalism in the 1970s, where basically it's a crisis of capitalist profitability. And so the consequence of that is, is governments and states are to try to appease these capitalists who, who say we're not willing to abide by this kind of post-war consensus where we have high taxes on the rich and we have powerful unions and we need to tighten our belts. Everyone needs, you know, Paul Volcker, the Federal Reserve Chairman, who basically induced a mass recession by raising, you think we're raising interest rates now. He raised them to like 20%. Yeah. And he said the American standard of living needs to decline. So as society was sort of saying, we need to tighten our belt and impose austerity, the environmental movement was agreeing, right? And, and that dynamic has just continued, unfortunately. And so uh, in the energy field, it's all about, you know, Imri Levin, Smalls, beautiful, scaling down, consuming less, being more efficient, whatever. But what I try to recover in the, in the book is that, you know, Marx and Engels <laughs> wrote their text in the midst of the Industrial Revolution. And they understood that this transformation materially was progressive, actually. <laughs> And that's actually, I mentioned earlier that in my hippie days in college, I became this deep ecologist. I was about like, we're all going to like live in communes and go be primitivist. But when I started studying energy, I very much disabused myself from that point of view. Because once you realize that what the transition to fossil fuels and industrial revolution was, was a massive shift in away from the reliance on two things, muscle power for production. So almost all work had to be done by human or animal muscles. So in those types of societies, the, the, there was very sharp divisions between the, the people that had to do manual labor were largely serfs or slaves and the elites who got to extract the surplus from these hard manual laborers. Fossil fuels and automatic machinery did shift a lot of that work away from muscles and towards mechanization. And that is a good thing. <laughs> we need more arduous, horrible work to be automated away. And But the other key thing is that prior to the Industrial Revolution, almost all the energy we needed had to come from the land. You know, 
in the United States before industri industrial revolution, we used a quarter of our crops to feed working animals. <laughs> so, uh, sorry, a quarter of the acreage we use for agriculture. So think about the spatial aspects of this. And if we wanted to smelt iron, we need many more thousands of, of acres of forest to, for, to, to, for the charcoal to, to, to basically process and smelt down the iron. So all industry relied on wood and, and all work relied on muscles, which need calories, which also need lots of land. And so suddenly we, we figured out how to get fuel from underneath the earth <laughs> and it didn't take as much land. So we, so it was this incredible labor saving and land saving breakthrough in human history. Now I was re I'm reading this Marxist historian right now, Eric Hobsbawm, who says probably the most important event in human history is the industrial revolution. And Marx and Engels were like, wow, like this is finally thrown off the shackles of human production. And for the first time in history, we now have the ability materially to give everyone, like what you were saying earlier, everyone a materially comfortable standard of living where everyone could have, you know, in, indoor plumbing, sanitation and, and basic electricity, refrigeration and stuff like that. And that's what made them excited about bringing socialism. And that's what the socialist movement was always about. We want to unshackle modernity and industry from the market and from capital and actually extend it to everyone. And so I actually think there's still so much we can do with that kind of politics in the context of this climate crisis. You think back, one of another famous communist and socialist is Vladimir Lenin. And one of his quotes was that communism is Soviet power, which is worker power in his view, plus electrification of the entire country. <laughs> and he brought the revolution to a very <clears throat> rural and peasant-based society where, where most of Russia didn't have access to these modern amenities. And he saw it very clearly, like if we were going to win this revolution, we need to, be, it's about bringing industrialization to everyone and giving them electrification. So that still, because as you were saying before, there's still so much poverty and so much what academics call energy poverty around the world. And about 800 million people had zero access to electricity around the world. But it, I think you're probably familiar with the energy analyst, Robert Bryce, oh, yeah. who, who's, you know, very pro nuclear and, and does, but he does in his book, he does this great analysis where he figures out that his refrigerator consumes about a thousand kilowatts per, per year or whatever it is. And he finds out that basically 3.1 billion people, 45% of the planet consume less electricity or have access to less electricity than his measly refrigerator. Yeah, <laughs> and so crazy. when we're when we're talking about 45% of the planet, we're talking about the masses that need, you know, that socialist idea. We need to bring this modernity to the mass. Still, that's still an urgent historical task we need to. And, and the thing is, as I try to make the point in the book, the key to solving climate change is all about electricity. It's all about cleaning up the electrical system and then and then electrifying other things that don't rely on electricity. And so if we could combine that kind of technical program of electrifying everything and cleaning up electricity with a combination of nuclear and other clean renewable sources or whatever it's going to be, and then extending that electricity to the masses that don't have it, you know, as you said, everyone around you in the Peace Corps, they want electricity. <laughs> everyone wants it. And so that's an easy way to get people on board with a climate program or a, a, a development program is if, if it's about extending and bringing all these benefits to the masses of people. Yeah. 
And also in the capitalist class section, you discuss you visited one of the top fertilizer plants in the United States that you're unable to name because it was based on an agreement for, for the research. But what yeah. was that like? So it was amazing because <laughs> I'm actually, as I'm suggesting, I'm kind of like a nerd that really once I started learning about the industrial revolution, I realized how important it was. So then I wanted to learn, like, how does this stuff work? Like, how do we, you know, the great energy analyst, Vaclav Smil, basically calls the discovery of the Haber-Bosch process, where we discovered how to synthesize nitrogen in the factory. It's, it's called synthetic ammonia. It's basically, he thinks, like, maybe the most important innovation we've ever made. <laughs> and he, he, he claims something like a third of humanity would not be alive today if we didn't figure out how to make this fertilizer, which dramatically increases the yields of food production you can you can do. So the Haber-Bosch process is this really carbon intensive process that largely uses natural gas here, coal in China. And, and so I just was like excited to, to learn about how the whole system worked, to learn more about kind of like the thermodynamics of it and where the emissions are coming from. But the other thing I learned is how little the people who manage that factory give to cares about climate change or, or anything to that you know they're they're mainly focused on churning out these fertilizer commodities to sell for a profit like any other capitalist right and so it was and and that's the kind of another thing about marx's idea of the hidden abode is it's hidden because it's literally hidden from us in the public and society because it's off limits uh, it's private property. You know, it's very rare the public journalist or anyone is given access to see what happens in a in a production production private property facility like that. So it was quite illuminating, to say the least. So the second part of the book, professional yeah. uh, the professional class, and right. you write about this statistic of in the United States, sixty four percent of the population lacks a bachelor's degree. Yeah, and. And this professional class is often very removed from this group of workers that don't have degrees. And you kind of go through the split with the environmentalist movement that abandoned the working class in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. Could you just uh, provide an outline on that? Yeah. So I, I sort of said some of it before, but to me there, I try to lay out like three types of professional class climate activists. The one, the first are what I call the science communicators who are like basically scientists or journalists who, who, who like say it, you know, they really want to focus on the problem is denial of the science, you know, like the worst thing, the fossil fuel industry is fun climate denial science. Not that they like materially extract <laughs> oil and gas and profit from it. And, and these are the people who got really riled up when Trump comes into office and it's like a war on truth and the. They organize a March for Science. And if you look, go just Google image and March for Science, and you see it is a very narrow spectrum of our society that went to the March for Science. And, you know, we'll have a bumper sticker that says got science instead of got milk or something. And again, that's, you know, for a highly educated person like that, people take that feel that's super important. And I actually think a lot of working class people understand climate science. They understand the greenhouse effect and they understand things are pretty messed up. But when you ground your politics and, and, and believing the science, it's just not really a mass based program. Then there's the policy technocrats who I kind of mentioned earlier, really try to say, Hey, we can design all these clever policies that can 
basically channel the cost of climate change into the market and allow market actors to seamlessly solve it through rational profit-oriented utility maximizing behavior. And I, I profile like a an NGO organization that's trying to get a carbon fee or it's carbon tax passed called Citizens Climate Lobby. And they have a slogan that we're going to outsmart climate change. <laughs> to me, that really summed up like how these people think, like it's all about being smart and like coming up with the smartest logical policy design that can, that can, you know, again, channel, you can model and channel how all the market actors are going to respond to these signals. But again, as we've seen, carbon taxes or cap and trade plans do not have wider popular resonance. People don't get excited about this. And there's they're a great- regressive, yeah. They're, and they can be regressive. I mean, yeah, you can design can them yeah. in ways- yeah. Like the Citizens Climate Lobby wants to do this. They call it carbon fee and dividends. So some of the, the fee gets redistributed to households in, in, in a progressive way. But recent research has found that that's so complicated that people don't get it and they don't, they don't like it either. <laughs> it, it's not, doesn't make it any more popular. You know, in the state of Washington, they've tried by popular referendum to pass a carbon tax in 2016 and 2018. And it failed miserably both times. These are not, the, they don't get people excited. And a very basic point I'm trying to make is that we want to win climate politics. We need to try to craft a politics that might have broad popular appeal. <laughs> and we and it's just amazing how a lot of the professional classes has their head up there. You know what? So much that they don't. It doesn't even occur to them that that maybe we should try to design something that that can appeal to the wider masses of people. And then the last group is what I call the anti-system radicals, which are the ones I'm most familiar with. And 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 these are the 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 kind of these are more like the eco socialist and the degrowth people who are all about like we need to all consume less and you know we need to localize agriculture and we need to scale down industrial civilization and and you know they would they would be very alarmed by what I was talking about earlier like spreading industrial modernity to the world <laughs> they would they would be horrified by that and so a lot of their 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 a lot of their politics really did grow explicitly out of that 1970s turn to austerity and a politics. I call it a politics of less. And and so not what I argue is none of these, whether you're a science communicator, policy technocrat or anti-system radical, has broad popular appeal amongst the wider majority of society and working class. So that's a good reason why we're losing. Absolutely. And Going into the third part of the book, you're looking at the working class and as you've already mentioned, the idea of like electrifying the climate movement and the, the case for electricity as a strategic sector. And I really appreciated you going through the IBEW and the UW mm -hmm. and kind of the history of electricity and unions within the United States. Could you talk about why this is such an important sector to organize? So like, like I said earlier, basically... Any energy technocrat will tell you the pathway to decarbonization goes through this one sector, electricity. <laughs> you clean up electricity and then you start electrifying things that don't typically run on electricity. So we just passed this legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act, that apparently is going to incentivize people to buy heat pumps, which are electric heating systems that aren't burning gas in your furnace, but are actually just using electricity to efficiently heat your home electric cars, but also there are ways to electrify various industrial applications. And you can't use electricity for everything. There's many things that are hard to electrify and, and we need to come up with other solutions there. But you can get pretty far by this kind of clean up electricity, electrify other things, 
progress. So, but what, what the professional class technocrats don't often bring up when they say this is that this sector of the economy in the United States, and I would Im imagine most countries in the world, has a huge history of union organizing and has, you know, it's one of the more union dense sectors in our, in the United States. The data I look at shows in basically electricity generation and distribution transmission has basically got 25% union density, which in many countries is pretty bad, but in the United States is really high. And, and so these are, are really one of the few parts of our economy that already have unions in them. They're organized and they have institutional bases of power. Now, a lot of climate activists will point out that these unions are what they call business unions. They're aligned with the bosses. They're, they're, they're very hostile to any sort of climate agenda because it might threaten their jobs and stuff. But what I suggest is that we, if we actually take a much more proactive approach to organizing with, alongside these unions and trying to learn, okay, why are you, why, why are you hostile to this particular decarbonization plan? What could we do differently? And you, when you talk to these unions, you find they, they don't, they don't really subscribe to the kind of hyperactivist like vision of 100% renewable energy. Like we're just going to decentralize our energy system to a bunch of little microgrids and solar co-ops, <laughs> wind wind farms. Like they they since again they're the workers who do the work. They understand that reliable 24-hour electricity requires a whole host of resources. And 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 right now, if you're spreading renewables, as they're finding in Germany and California. Basically, you need backup power, and that's natural gas. So that's not exactly a great climate solution. So unions will say, actually, we do need nuclear. We do need some, we might even need something that you talked about this with climate activists, and they, and they start really getting angry, but something like carbon capture on natural gas plants. Because ultimately, we're finding that the only way to stabilize a grid with renewables is natural gas. But if you can capture the carbon on that, that might be a decent solution. And you can keep those natural gas plants, which are highly unionized, good jobs open, for, and not to mention all the jobs that would be in, you know, implementing this carbon capture technology. And so if you were just able to get beyond your kind of hyper-environmental ideology and say, sure, why don't, we, why don't we allow for a little bit of carbon capture on natural gas plants? The unions would be like, thank you. Great. That sounds wonderful. And the unions are open to other more industrial things like green hydrogen or or, or, or even what's called blue hydrogen, which is where you do capture the carbon using natural gas and, and something like geothermal, like, like a very industrial, you know, you, you actually have to use fracking technology to do this new cutting edge geothermal type technology. So basically the unions, unlike environmentalists are like, we need, we need to build new big industrial systems to decarbonize the grid and environmentalists are like, no, we just want solar panels and wind farms. <laughs> and so if we just sort of met them halfway, said yes to nuclear, said yes to this broader suite of technology, I think we could start to get, get them more on our side. But I also think we climate activists have a case to make to these unions, which is that if they are proactive about organizing their own power, they are threatened by this energy transition. Because if you do look at the renewable industry today, it's very hostile to unions. They're very hard jobs to organize. They're spread out, they're dispersed, they're very transient workplaces. And so they're very low density unions. And they're also, there's a whole nother story I could get into. Renewable energy projects, because of the tax credit system in our country, are owned by Wall Street. They're, you know, some of the wealthiest people in the whole economy are the ones that have financing and stakes in these renewable energy projects. So 
renewable energy right now is a very anti-labor, you know, pro-Wall Street kind of regime. So if the unions in the electricity sector aren't really thinking about how do we make sure this energy transition is a union-powered one, they're going to be threatened by this energy transition. So I think there's actually a more kind of self-interest, material interest that unions need to hear to start thinking about how to build their power in ways that can 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 kind of make sure that they're on they're at the helm of the energy transition. I have some cases of how unions have done that about fighting things like deregulation. And I go back to the great legendary Tony Mazaki, who fought for the Occupational Health and Safety Administration. So we have a lot of history we can learn from to learn how unions can use their their money, their resources, their institutional power to actually fight for for things that benefit their members, but also can benefit society like OSHA or like climate action and decarbonizations. I um, grew up with the Simpsons and <laughs> saw nuclear sludge green and this idiot Homer at the controls and having meltdowns every other episode. And yeah. and then I learned about nuclear <laughs> and I yeah. was like, holy shit, yeah. this is a miracle power source. And yes. I just saw a stat, I think Emmett Petty, Penny does this grid brief, a newsletter yep. that comes out that everyone should subscribe to. to. Yeah. And it, it was something like California spent over $600 billion on wind and solar. And if they put that all into nuclear, mm -hmm. they would have a zero carbon grid right now and yes. they would be a world leader. And uh, there's this other idea with within energy is in everything it's in it's in the computers we're talking through right now yeah. it's it's in the building materials that that are above us and i think the goal should be to try to get the electricity and the energy as cheaply as possible as yes. clean abundant as reliable yes. as possible yes. and and so that everyone can have it and then you can organize everything on top of that much more efficiently and with less resources and when you look at wind and solar, it's just impossible to do an industrial policy on on a utility scale wind and solar because you're always going to have natural gas backing it up. Yep. Not to mention supply chains that are coming from China. We don't even have a silicon industry. We have to completely build that up, which I, I think we should do. And I'm I'm if you're off grid and or if you just want some solar panels in your backyard and you want a nice expensive Tesla battery that you can have if the power goes out, yeah, I'm all for it. At the same time, I think we, we need to strengthen our grid and then also create more energy because what China is doing with building a coal plant every week and now that they have committed to a $450 billion, 150 nuclear reactor program over the next yeah. 10 years, yeah. their energy costs are going to be so low that anything we try to produce here, it's we're, we're going to be with broken grids and blackouts and everything else. And we're not going to even be able to move our products anywhere outside of this country or anything like that, or they're going to dump into here and we're, we're going to be unable to compete. Right. So like also growing the energy grid for future production is, is going to be really important. And when I see the wind and solar people going against nuclear and it's clean and carbon is the greatest thing that they say, it's like in some ways they're unmasked. It's like actually mm -hmm. they're, they're more of like they just think there's too many people on the planet. And, <laughs> and that's a really kind of cynical view. I love the fact, though, that you do go into the Tennessee Valley Authority mm -hmm. and these huge government interventions, whether yeah. we've had the Rural Electrification Agency yeah. during the New Deal, the Tennessee yeah. Valley Authority, there's the Northwest Power Alliance, which did a lot of dam building. So even right now, Tennessee Valley Authority, in 2018, you write, generate 160 billion kilowatt hours of electricity. 
It's a government agency that's making profit and it manages mm -hmm. 73 electricity production plants comprising 41% nuclear, 39% fossil fuels, 10% hydro and 10% wind and solar. Yeah. I mean, to ask what is the blueprint to move forward, it's projects like these. And when yeah. the market can't deliver yeah. inexpensive, reliable, abundant, secure energy, then the government has to step in. And and so could could you kind of just as we're we're reaching towards close to the end of time, like what is the government's role? It it shows like how deeply we've gone down this neoliberal hellscape <laughs> where for several decades we've been told again, you know we got to tighten our belts. Government can't do anything, right? We have to scale down our ambition as a society. But, you know, in, in the 1930s, it was seen as capitalism had just created utter crisis and depression and that it was up to public investment to actually build the infrastructure of a modern society and deliver, you know, you know, 1934, 10% of farms had electricity. By 1950, it was up to about 90%. So they were really like we had, like Lenin, they were trying to deliver electricity to the rural masses. And you can look at other countries who realize like energy is a public necessity, right? You have to have these systems working. So during the energy crisis of the 1970s, countries like Sweden and France were like, okay, Oil is a hard thing to depend on because we don't have a lot of it. So let's just build a bunch of nuclear reactors to stabilize our electricity system. And they did that as a public investment. And they took on the cost of the capital investment by as a public good. And so that's the, you know, you're, you'll hear everywhere in this country that the problem with nuclear is it costs too much and it's, you know, going over budget. But in, if the if the public is able to take on that cost as a, is what the public should do. It's like, we need this to build our infrastructure. Then, you know, once you build it, it's actually incredibly cheap as, you know, you don't hear people in France complaining about high electricity costs. Well, one, so one side note really quick on those people who are like, ah, oh, the cost of nuclear is too expensive. Not in South Korea. They, yes, they're building on time. That's another they're, there's great, like yeah. Russia has a, Rose Adam has a, a, a very long track record of building on budget on time. So maybe we just need to be better builders and figure out what the hell is wrong Absolutely. with us that we've lost our competitive <laughs> edge to be able to build things. But I yeah. digress. And just one last thing is that the other thing you're going to hear from people is that, well, renewables are so cheap now, right? <laughs> They're so cheap. So it doesn't make sense to do nuclear because you just compare the cost and it's just a no brainer. Go with renewables. It, it, and again, it shows how clouded we are in this neoliberal world where we only look at the market, right? And we look at this, it's this really insane way of, 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 of looking at the cost of different energy sources called levelized cost or something. And, and you can say, oh yeah, renewables a lot cheaper. And 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 it's a sort of fulcrum of classical political economy to look at a commodity and say, okay, you can look at it as exchange value, its price, but you also need to look at its use value, right? Which is what does the thing do in the real world? And so renewables are quite cheap in exchange value wise, but their use value is incredibly limited. Like they only give you power when the sun is shining, when this wind is blowing. And there's many ways you can try to overcome that, but that as... You know, Europe went through a wind drought last in 2021, and they basically didn't have all their wind farms churning. And that's a real problem for renewables. So you look at the use value of nuclear, and it's very different, right? It's 24-7 reliable power. You can store the fuel on site, and, you know, 
it's it's just a completely different material system that you have access to. And, and just comparing these two on a price basis makes no sense. And people, again, who who have expertise in the grid and know that a grid is a complex machine where you have to balance supply and demand. They know that, you know, that, that nuclear and renewables are really different in terms of what they can offer you from a use value perspective. But you get all these people that just look at a chart in a price level and say, well, obviously it's renewables. So. Yeah. You also cite Jane McAlevey several times and yeah. she's a, a a pretty famous labor organizer, author, and she's talked a bit about focusing on organizing strategic sectors. Yes. And I've, I've heard her talk about looking at if you could organize regionally during certain campaigns and if you can get the teachers, healthcare workers yep. and logistic, you know, transport workers and, right. and logistics workers and warehouses, you could shut down cities, you could shut down regions, you can shut down other parts of the country. And it's not just to shut it down for the sake of shutting it down. It's to try to achieve labor wins to get back power for yep. the workers to get more of the fruits of their labor and have more of a democratic say in their workplace, whether it's not safe and it can be made safer, it can air conditioning, more breaks and those type of things, but then also to, to get paid mm -hmm. more and get healthcare and those type of things. So we've already talked a little bit about this, but for the strategic sector, how can we support our electricity unions, unions around electricity production, and where where do you see us going forward and trying to help with this organizing? So there's a number of kind of tactics, I guess you would say, that I offer in the book. The first, socialists have this long history of something they call a kind of rank and file strategy, where you actually, socialists try to get jobs in these sectors to try to build up a more militant fighting union movement within the very unions themselves. And so actually like the Democratic Socialists of America, they're actually encouraging members to get jobs as teachers or nurses and actually radicalize these unions from the inside to kind of build more democratic unions, more fighting unions. And so, and there's actually, I know DSA members who have done this and in the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers and they're trying to build up kind of rank and file activism and energy in the very unions themselves. So that's one option. But like what I've been saying for much of the discussion, a lot of climate activists are in highly knowledge economy, sort of professional types of contexts. And, and so they're not working in as, as a line person <laughs> in electrical trade. And they, they didn't, they, they're not in this kind of sector. So I do think even just ordinary climate activists just need to do more to try to organize with these unions and try to put them at the center of any climate campaign and and not in a superficial way, but actually instead of like taking your radical climate out, like in New York state, there's this plan to just ban all natural gas right away, right? And a lot of people have been taking that to unions and saying, what do you think? We're going to ban on the unions are of course like, that's insane. We, we can't do that. We need... The, the unions actually had a retort. They said, plan, not ban, right? And and it's it's amazing because socialists are the ones that want to be all about planning, right? About like conscious plans. And so so we really need to like go to the unions and not say, here's what we need to do and you need to get on board or otherwise you're a climate denier. We need to say, what do you want? What is bothering you at your job? What what do you think about climate change? What do you think are the suite of technologies we need? And what would a kind of campaign or a policy look like that would improve your members' lives and also help solve this climate problem. So there's been efforts to do that. There's something called Climate Jobs New York that really 
puts the unions at the center of trying to crafting policy and crafting. And a number of states have kind of passed state legislation with the unions really driving a Green New Deal campaign in Maine and a climate jobs campaign in Illinois. So there's like, there's examples of how, how this can be done. And the last thing is it's a little dicey because as you were suggesting earlier, the greatest way to to win things and, and enact your power as a worker is to with, withdraw your labor and go on strike. And we've seen, you know, the West Virginia teachers go on strike. They shut down the schools and they win their demands in a couple of weeks. It's just incredible power. But we have to be a little careful, like, you know, electricity workers, if they um, if they go on strike and shut down electricity to hospitals, that's going to create quite a public backlash. But I looked into it and there's a lot of kind of interesting ways in which electricity workers can go on strike or disrupt work at the at their work sites in ways that can force bosses and companies to pay attention to their demands. And one example that I love to bring up is essentially in France, you know, the we know that French workers are much more militant than American workers. And in France, utility workers actually were able to strategically cut off power to Amazon warehouses <laughs> during the holiday season as a strategic way to force the leader Macron to back off on this pension reform he's trying to push through. And so that kind of tactic where you're shutting off power to a very like easily villainized kind of capitalist, like that's pretty cool. And so, you know, there's, there's, we'd have to think creatively about how strikes and shutdowns in the electrical system would actually practically work, but it's, it's, it's another option. Well, Matt, we've ran over time and I really appreciate your time and everyone should check out your book, Climate Change is Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet. And thanks again for all that you're doing. Thanks so much for having me. I, I like the show a lot and you, you raise a lot of really important issues. So thanks again. Ooh.